Yes. Wow. I don't know what it's like at other campuses, but that was really nice. I appreciate that. You just made a pastor feel really good. Thank you. Let's make everyone else feel good at our other campuses. Let's greet Evergreen and Lakewood, of course, Littleton, Arvada, uh, across the pond at Brussels. Man, we love you guys so much, and let's do this. Let's make the men and women at God Behind Bars feel so welcome. We love you guys so much. So much. We have a lot to cover this weekend, a lot of information, so I'm going to jump right into it. I want to honor you guys with time because I know that the brain can only endure what the butt can. And so I'm going to talk (laughs) succinctly, and we're going to jump right in. Here's where I won't be flippant, though, and quick, is we're going to pray before we do this. And, And here's why. This isn't the Chad show. This isn't a pastor's moment. This is where the holy written word of God takes place. And because I'm flawed and because I'm broken and because I read this book imperfectly, man, I want you guys to understand it's the power of the Holy Spirit speaking to each one of us is where the real work is done. You guys understand that and agree with that? I don't want the pressure every time I come up here. I want it on the one who can handle it, God. So let's pray and give this time to him. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your holy word. I thank you that, like the prophet Isaiah said, every time we speak it, it's like rain coming down and watering the earth and it always accomplishes something before it goes back into the heavens. And that's going to happen again this weekend at Red Rocks Church, God. And so we, with total humility and expectancy, God, we sit here and we say, thank you for your word. Would you now preach it through me, God, in a powerful way? I pray this in the name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. So as you guys know, we are officially neck deep in the holiday season, and I don't love the holiday season. My wife would tell you this. I'm a bit of a holiday Scrooge, and uh, it's not good. It's not okay, but it's an honest moment in church. I'm a holiday Scrooge. I just don't like them. Uh, I, I read a Harris poll this week, 2017 Harris poll. They interviewed and asked a whole bunch of people, and Christmas was ranked no shocker there, the number one holiday that people love. 46% of Americans said Christmas is the best holiday out there. Uh, A big drop off for number two is what we're coming up on this week in Thanksgiving, 19%. Halloween, 9%. Uh, 4th of July, 5% of Americans. Easter, 3%. Sorry, Jesus, (laughs) for your lowly 3% of people who love the single most important moment in the history of the world. Paul said, don't even show up to church if the resurrection didn't happen. But good, we got 3% in America. Hey, this does tell me we still need church to happen, though. So we're in a good spot. Uh, New Year's, 2%, and then a bunch of less other ones uh, that don't even have 1% uh, of the vote. I'm just a Scrooge. I'll start with Christmas. Um, I just don't love it. And I know I probably should. Definitely happy birthday to Jesus. But who has a birthday where everybody else throws a party for themselves? You know what I'm saying? And so it, it's debt. It's, it's parents have pressure for their kids to make sure they get what they want. Everyone's scrambling around. This Friday, Black Friday, you're going to see a bunch of things hit Facebook and Instagram of people just beating each other up and running over each other to get into Walmart a little bit early to get $40 off something. It's ludicrous what Christmas has become, and I just don't like it. And I know it's my problem. If you love Christmas, stay loving Christmas. I just don't like it. I do love the birth of Jesus. L- disclaimer before I get emailed. What's after that? Uh, New Year's Eve. Again, you guys know this because I whine and brag about it equally every sermon. I'm a parent of four. Last thing I want to do is stay up till midnight and listen to my neighbors shoot shotguns. Like I, that's the worst possible thing I could possibly do. What's after that? Oh, this is the worst one for me. I cannot stand Valentine's Day. Okay. Here's why. Here's, I'm sorry, ladies, but here's why. My wife is as romantic as romantic gets. Her, her love language is gift giving and gift receiving. I'm the least romantic person on the history of, pl- of planet Earth ever. And my love language is time apart and trash talking. <laughs> so seriously. So some of our most colossal fights have taken place on St. Patrick's, or not St. Patrick's Day, that's for the drunks. That's for you drunks. We'll get there. <laughs> Valentine's Day literally is is a day where the universe just says, Chad, are you prepared to fail really bad today? Yeah, it's the essence of unmet expectations for my wife. So I just get pressure. What's after that? Uh, then are we at St. Patrick's Day yet or Easter? Whichever one. St. Patrick's Day, y'all drink less, all right? That doesn't honor God. Stop it. <laughs> Green beard? No, don't. 
Don't do that. And then we've got what? Cinco de Mayo. I've never seen more white people all of a sudden loving Mexican freedom. It's, it's tequila. Again, we're going to have an altar call at the end of this service. No. No. Fourth of July. I hate crowds. I mean, I love you guys, but I hate crowds. Besides church crowds. We should probably read some scripture. I can hear myself. The older I get, the more difficult big crowds are for me. And especially anytime you got to go somewhere where parking's an issue. So I'm going to stay up past my bedtime to go with big crowds that I don't even know to have parking problems, to watch some light go off in the sky. I don't need that, right? So I don't love that. But then here's what happens. It's like God looked down and said, hey, Holiday Scrooge, I'm going to give you a little gift. I'm going to try and deal with your cynicism. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to tailor make a holiday just for you, Chad. And we call it this, Thanksgiving. Can I get a witness? What is better than thank? It's like God looked at me and said, hey, Chad, there's going to be a day where you wake up and the first thing you do is you're going to pay a little pre-penance for your uh, dietary sins. You're going to go to the gym in the morning, which I already love going to the gym. So I go to the gym on Thursday morning and then I eat uh, an unbiblical incessant amount of foods to the point of meat sweats, Okay. <laughs> along some incredible carbohydrates. Then there's an inappropriate amount of dessert after that. And then here's my two options, watch football or take a nap. (laughs) Are you kidding me? It's like God said, this is for you, Chad. There's not one football game on. There's not two football games on. Now there are three football games during Thanksgiving. I don't even see my family during Thanksgiving. It's amazing. I love it. By far my favorite holiday, and I'm sorry, I'm the Scrooge here, and I know a bunch of you love all of these different holidays. I'm just trying to tell you my favorite holiday without question is what we're about to enter in this week. And I want to spend a few minutes this weekend talking about this issue of Thanksgiving. And not from a point of food and not from a point of exercise or football or naps. All that is great. But I want us, by the time we walk out of our respected campus, to have a renewed if you've been doing this a while, or a very brand new conviction about the power of thanksgiving in a person's life. There are very few things that God has given the human soul that do more to bring health and vitality to the life that Jesus said he came to give you full life, right? There's very few things God has given us than this beautiful thing called thanksgiving and gratitude and praise. I'm gonna be using all three of those words, this whole message, interchangeably. When I'm saying Thanksgiving, I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about gratitude. I'm talking about praise. And so what I want to do is I want to look at what I call four audacious claims that the Bible makes about the power of Thanksgiving and gratitude and praise. I'm just going to go one after the other. These four verses are my Mount Rushmore verses on the power of Thanksgiving. They say some audacious things about how significant and important they are to this thing called the Christian life. And we're going to start with Psalms 100. I really want to get to verse 3, but we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, the whole psalm, because it's just beautiful. This is probably going to be this weekend and or next weekend, the single most preached passage of Scripture all over the globe, because it's a Thanksgiving passage of Scripture. King David writes this. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. He says, serve the Lord with gladness. I love that. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. And here's what I want to camp on. This is a verse you're all very familiar with. Enter his gates with what? Thanksgiving, right? And his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless God's name. Why? For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. I think this is extremely interesting. If you're new to church, let's talk for a minute. When, when King David says this very poetic but could be confusing statement, When he says, enter God's gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, he's talking about a literal place in ancient Israel. It was the temple that God called them to build and God told Israel under the old covenant that he wanted them to build a temple where his presence would reside to way heightened degrees. And so several times a year, all of Israel would, would, would come to Jerusalem and they would come to the temple and they would have these incredible celebrations at the temple. 
and everybody could not wait to get there, number one, because they were going to have an incredible party, but number two, it was one of those few times a year where they could fill what we have the privilege if we want to fill in all the time, an increased and in a heightened degree of God's Holy Spirit on planet Earth in the temple, but they had to go to the temple. And of all the things God could have told them, When it came to entering the temple, of all of the postures of the human heart, God could have directed them to enter the temple with. Don't you think it's powerful and amazing that he said Thanksgiving's the way to enter his presence? I mean, based on just the sheer rebellion of planet Earth towards God's holiness, you think he could have said, hey, I want you to enter my holy temple. Solemn, sad, sober constantly in front of you just how far you've gotten from God and how far God's gotten from you. I want you to enter the temple mourning. I want you to enter God's courts weeping because we have gotten so far from my original temple. I picture God being able to say that, but he doesn't say anything like that because it's not his character. He's saying of all the postures he could have chosen, the posture he wants us to enter into the fullness of his presence is what? Thanksgiving and praise. That's a beautiful thing. I look at it like this, uh, stretching. I'm, I'm about to turn in a couple weeks, I hate saying this, I'm about to turn 44. And stretching and warming up as a person about to turn 44 has never became more important, okay? I look at the power of thanksgiving like stretching. Here's why. King David or, King, or Moses says this in Psalm 16. He says, you will make known the path of life in your presence. Listen to this. In God's presence, there's what? Fullness. Not some, not a fullness of joy. He says, in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. If in God's presence, there's fullness of joy, which is what every human being wants, whether they know it or not, it's, it's, it's completely what you and I want, whether you know it or not, is the fullness of God's joy. And he says, it's in his presence. Well, how do we enter his presence? Not flippantly, not indifferently. We enter God's presence to receive more of his fullness via thanksgiving and gratitude and praise. It's a principle not only in the Old Testament, but it comes known into the New Testament. We'll look at that in a little bit. But I look at thanksgiving and gratitude and praise as like stretching, as warming up. Because you cannot do any type of exercise or any type of athletic endeavor if you don't first warm up and stretch. You can do that, but if you do, you're not going to perform at your optimum level, are you? If you try and jump into any kind of exercise or any type of athletic activity and you don't stretch and warm your body up first, the odds of you getting injured are exponential compared to if you stretch and warm up. And I know that's a broken analogy, but what I want us to see here, Red Rocks, is thanksgiving and gratitude and praise is what warms the spirit, the human spirit up to receive more of the fullness of God. It's a gift to us. And when you are a person of consistent and intentional and continual thanksgiving and praise and gratitude, your chances of getting sidelined are so much less in this lifetime. There's just something that, that mitigates and litigates and Bill Gates. I got to have three to be a pastor and I only had two. The human heart. Sorry, I only had two. So I had to come up. I wrote that earlier. I'm like, that's good, Chad. There's something that, let's call it this, that referees the human soul when you bring to God first your thanksgiving and praise and gratitude. It eliminates a whole lot of prayer that's not necessary. It's amazing how many things we call problems drift off into nothingness when you start your time with God off with thanksgiving and praise and gratitude. It's amazing the stewardship over the human soul that comes when you're a person of thanksgiving. So that's how we enter It's like stretching, if you will. It's like warming up to receive the fullness, to live this life at the optimum level with the least amount of chance of getting injured. That's the power of the human soul with thanksgiving. Second is this, and this might be the most audacious of all of the verses we're gonna read. 1 Thessalonians chapter five, verses 16, 17, and 18. The apostle Paul writes this. He says, rejoice always. Really, Paul? Always. Are you serious, Paul? Always. Yeah, always. Then he says something equally as crazy. He says, pray without ceasing. Really? That might get me fired on my job. Pray, right? That's what he says here. And then it gets even more audacious. He says this, give thanks in how many circumstances? All. That's absurd to me on the surface. 20 years ago when I started reading scripture and I came across this verse, 
And it said, give thanks in all circumstances. And then it puts this kind of added pressure on the human heart because it's God's will. It's like, this isn't a suggestion in God's word. This is a command. And I, as an analytical kid, I used to read this with a bent towards cynicism. And I used to go, God, if I'm just being honest, this feels like you're setting us up for failure here. This feels not only impractical, rejoice always, pray without stopping, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I said, God, not only is this impractical, it feels insensitive. Now, I know we're in church and we're supposed to be so holy and great, but, but you ever read it that way? Some of you walk in, I, I think of a single mom whose husband is a no-show and he hasn't paid any of his child support in the last year and now her and her precious kids are about to be kicked out of their apartment and they don't know where they're gonna go next. And Paul has the audacity to look at that single mom who's genuinely trying to follow her faith in Jesus Christ and go, hey, you need to be thankful right now. That feels insensitive to me. This weekend at one of our campuses, I'm not sure where, we're gonna have a girl and her family who's gonna attend our services and she's in Denver right now. She's from Las Vegas because she's learning how to walk again from getting shot in the back when she just wanted to go have some fun at a country music concert. And I think give thanks in all circumstances. Rejoice always for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Paul, I know you're a zealot. And I know you didn't have a real job and I know you never got married. So this type of crazy behavior is easy for you. But we have real lives to live, Paul. Right. That's that's my cynical side coming out right there when I'm going, God, I don't understand this. You just got back your test from the doctor. And it's malignant. And you want me to give thanks in all circumstances. You just started that business with the God dream and the God idea. And a year later, you're, fi you're filing chapter seven and you want me to rejoice? You want me to give thanks in all circumstances? So here's what, here's what I had to conclude at one point. Either we serve a, a, an extremely narcissistic and needy deity, which I've concluded isn't even close to the case. He's a good God. David said it. We praise God because he's good. He's faithful to endless generations, right? Either he's though narcissistic and needy and has to demand our praise and our affirmation so he can somehow feel full or good about himself, or there's something so powerful about thanksgiving and rejoicing and gratitude and praise that if there's ever a time the human soul most needs it, it's when all hell's breaking loose in your life. I think that's what it is. Jesus, let's think about this. Jesus says the exact same principle in different words in John 16, 33. What's he say? In this world, you will have trouble. I love that the Bible's honest. I love that Jesus is honest. He says, in this world, you will have trouble, but be of good what? Cheer. Why? He says, because I've overcome the world. Good cheer and trouble are not mutually exclusive when you're a kingdom person. You hear that? I know this would be shocking to the world and the world would say, no, you have to control your circumstances in a way that so many good things happen that you have a happy, joyful life. And God says, no, 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 you're gonna have all kinds of trouble in this life. King Solomon said the same thing in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes chapter three. He said, you're gonna have all kinds of seasons. I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, listen, life's gonna be this endless roller coaster of highs and lows. There's gonna be seasons of war. There's gonna be seasons of peace. Solomon says there's going to be seasons when you are on cloud nine and dancing and praising comes easy. And then there's going to be seasons when you're in the house of mourning. Life is just this roller coaster ride of circumstances and seasons that are so different and so opposed to each other. If we put our hope in circumstances, we're done. Jesus says in this world, you will have trouble. That's what a circumstance. But then he says, but be of good cheer. That's what? An attitude. I've overcome the world. Listen to me. Kingdom people, and I think you're here because, like me, you want to be a Jesus disciple. I think you're here this weekend because you want to be a kingdom person, right? And what we're being taught here by Jesus is good cheer has everything to do with your attitude, not your circumstance. Like, Jesus living in you trumps circumstances going on around you, right? And this is why joy is possible even in the darkest seasons of life. One is a circumstance in this world 
And one is an attitude. Be of good cheer. Good cheer, please understand this. Good cheer doesn't come from good circumstances. Good cheer comes from a good God. You understand that? Good cheer doesn't come from good circumstances. Good cheer comes from having such a good God that you can have a good attitude even when your circumstances are awful. Good cheer is not found in a place. It's found in a posture. It's not a destination. It's a posture of the heart. It's not a position. Good cheer, thanksgiving, gratitude, praise. It's not a position in life that causes you to do that. It's a disposition. It always starts out as a choice. That's why Philippians 4, 5 through 10, this is the third one that makes audacious claims about the power of thanksgiving. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. And he's a good teacher, right? One of the best tools in the tool belt of a teacher is repetition. And he knows this is so fundamentally important to the health of the human soul. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again because it's so important and yet so counterintuitive. Rejoice. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand, so do not be anxious about anything, but in what? Everything by prayer and supplication. And here it is. You ready? With thanksgiving. Paul says, here's the life kingdom people live. In everything you do, of course you got to pray to God. That's essential. Of course you petition God and ask God for things. That's incredibly necessary. But you have to add thanksgiving to that mix. Or here's what happens. If you just serve the God who you ask things from, it becomes transactional, not relational. The beauty of thanksgiving is it referees between your supplications and thanksgiving. It's what actually creates intimacy. That's the power of thanksgiving. So of course we're supposed to pray. Of course it's good for kids to ask their father for something. You don't have to apologize for that. But here's where asking for, for things endlessly from God and just running into God's presence all the time, trying to get the next thing taken care of or the next circumstance controlled is going to end up being nothing more than a transactionary relationship with you and him. And it will never give you the fullness of joy you want. What referees that, though, what makes it beautiful is in that prayer time where you're asking him for your daily bread and everything else, you make sure you take some time to just be grateful and thankful. Here's why. Here's what happens to people who are people of prayer and people of thanksgiving. The peace of God, which surpasses understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Does that not sound like a healthy soul? Someone who has peace that they can't even define? This means this goes past circumstance. If you need a peace that's undefinable, that means you need peace in circumstances where you shouldn't have peace. Do you understand how essential peace is to the human heart? It's so vital that one of the last things Jesus says before he goes to the cross is my peace I give you, my peace I leave you. How bad does the human heart need and was designed to be at peace if that's the last thing he says he's gonna actually give us through the power of his Holy Spirit? And a peace that passes understanding is found in the pathway of thanksgiving and gratitude and praise. That's why it's so significant. He goes on to say, here's what gratitude and thanksgiving looks like practically. He says, finally, brothers, whatever's true. Man, we live in a world of lies. You wake up every day and you're instantly hit with lies. Whether it's lies you're telling yourself or lies you're watching on the news channels. You're inundated with lies. And Paul says, hey, it's true. There's, there's a bunch of lies in this world. But listen, you have a choice to focus on what's true. You want to be a person of praise? You focus on what's true. Whatever's honorable in this dishonorable world we currently live in, you focus on that. Whatever's just in this world that is so incredibly unjust right now, you focus on what's just. Whatever's pure, Red Rocks, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's anything of excellence, anything excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, do what? Think about those things. Does that not sound like a choice of the will? It is because listen to what he says next. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, you ready for this? Practice <laughs> these things. Why? The peace of God will be with you. I hear Alan Iverson in my mind. Practice. Practice. Man, we're talking about practice. You guys remember that press conference? He's at the top of his game. He was still in Philadelphia. He was playing as good as it got. He was having an MVP season. 
and he missed a couple key practices as the captain of the team. And in his press conference, of course, they started to ask him about that. They kind of alluded to the fact like, hey, maybe this isn't real great leadership. Why are you skipping practice? Are you better than, and that's when he said, practice? Like, do you see me play? Do you see how well I perform? Do you think a guy at my level needs practice? And the Apostle Paul's saying this to all of us. It doesn't matter what level of life you currently find yourself playing at. Yes, we always need practice because the gravitational pull of the human heart, the natural bent of our human hearts is not to think on what's pure and lovely and just and excellent and holy and praiseworthy. The natural gravitational pull of your heart, even post-salvation, is still to think of all the things that are wrong with this world and all the things that are wrong with you and all the things that are wrong with other people. And the Bible says, but that's not what kingdom people do. If we don't think about all the things that are right in this world, if we don't find the things that are right in other people, if we don't fixate on the things that are right about us, not wrong, who will? Because the rest of the world isn't. And this is the light that we get to bring to the world. So he says, practice these things. Practice being grateful. Practice intentionally being thankful. And what happens? The peace of God will be with you. So you know what Paul just said? Peace takes practice. And I think a lot of times we don't think that way because Jesus said, my peace I leave you, my peace I give you. So we think it's a peace takes practice. Peace, listen to me, is a fruit of the spirit, not a gift of the spirit. And there's a big difference. The Bible says we have both from the spirit. The spirit gives all of us different gifts to bring glory to God. And here's how you know it's a gift. You do it like a fish in water. And when you do it, you just do it better and easier than everyone else. And when you do it, there just seems to be more and more results than other people trying to do the same thing that don't have that gift do. That's just a gift. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. You don't cultivate it. You don't work for it. It's just, boom, spirit gives it to you. It's his joy to give it to you so that you can participate in the kingdom and bring glory to God. But then there's the fruit of the spirit, which is the proof of the spirit alive and in step in our hearts. And fruit, unlike gifts, has to be what? Cultivated, stewarded, tended to, pruned, constantly looked at, constantly taken care of, constantly watered and fed, right? To grow it as big and as beautiful as possible. And if you want the fruit of peace, Paul's saying you have to be a person who practices thanksgiving, like intentionally. You don't wait to feel like being thankful. You don't wait to uh, have a reason to be grateful. The Bible says this. It takes us to our fundamental core. It says, let everything that what? Breathes, praise God. That's an insensitive statement. Unless praising God does something magnificent for the human soul. Then it's beautiful. If you could just be barely breathing and everything else in life's going horrible. How mean would it be for the writer in the Psalms to say, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Unless the fact that you're breathing is a sign that God's not done with you on this side of eternity yet, which means it's a good reason to be alive, no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're walking through. It's a good day to be alive. Everything that is a desire starts out as a discipline. That's what I want you to know. When Paul says practice these things, here's what I mean. The Bible says this, we love this coffee mug verse. Everyone loves this one, but you gotta wrap some context around it, but there's not enough room on the coffee mug, so we just put that. And it says this, right? Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you what? The desires of your heart. Something in us triggers when we hear that kind of language because we're so desire-based. We're so fixated on our desires. Delight yourself in the Lord well, let me, let me just say something about that right away. It's a virtual impossibility to delight yourself in the Lord without being thankful and grateful and full of praise to the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. But between the desires of your heart and the destination of that desire coming to fruition, there's this bridge you gotta walk across and it is a bridge called discipline. Self-discipline. The, the fruit of the spirit living in you is, is a spirit of self-control. You have it in you. So when God gives you a desire, your next step is a disciplined life of gratitude and thanksgiving. You want a God desire to be squashed in the womb? Then do this. Think you're owed something in this lifetime. Nothing will destroy the God life, the joy unspeakable and full of glory, the peace that passes understanding that I want everyone in our church to have. Nothing will squash that quicker than thinking this world or your God owes you something. 
We are participants in a gift. Nothing is worse than the spirit of entitlement, right? It's Philippians 2. Jesus, being God, the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but taking the very nature of a servant. Jesus was and is God. He stepped off his throne. He came into this broken, sin-stained world and chose to be treated the way you and I are treated. He chose to step into this world and treat every moment, not like something that the creator of the universe deserves, but a gift to show us that that's what we're to do as well. Everything you have right now or don't have, regardless, you are living in a gift if you are breathing. And there's something so powerful about stirring up praise, especially when everything around you is telling you to do the opposite. When life's telling you to question your circumstances, stir up praise, stir up gratitude, get fired up, get competitive. Don't give that. See, here's what's so wonderful is the enemy uses circumstances to destroy our disposition of thanksgiving. He uses external things to get us so distracted from what the soul really needs. And here's what I've learned. When you start to praise God, when it doesn't make sense, the enemy doesn't know what to do. He loses all kinds of control over you. He loses all kinds of stronghold power over you because praise and thanksgiving and gratitude confuses the enemy because he is, he is working overtime right now to kill, steal, and destroy from your life. That's not my words. That's the words of Jesus. He's working overtime every day to do that. And when you, no matter what you're walking through, rise up like Job who said, even if God slays me, I will still praise him. Isn't that crazy? I don't know if you ever, I, wrote, I read Job. It was the first book I ever read when I got saved and because I thought it said job and I didn't have one. I'm like, I'll start here. I'll start here. I'm believing for one now. I'm a Christian. I can believe for things, right? I literally thought it was job. I started reading chapter one and I'm like, this is the worst story I've ever read in my life. I don't want to be a Christian, <laughs> Right? Like if you're new to the Bible, it's just this story where the Bible says Job's the, the most righteous man ever walked the face of the earth and, and everything gets taken from him. Family, livestock, riches, wealth, land, just in a second. And then his wife comes along and literally says, curse, <laughs> curse God and die, Job. That's an amazing wife to have, right? Thanks, thanks, honey. She says that and then his friends show up and it doesn't get much better. They start trying to figure out who's the reason this happened and they start getting them all crazy. And at one point, this righteous, beautiful indignation and Job rises up and he stands up and he looks his friends in the eyes and goes, even if God kills me, I will praise him. He knew something that I want us to walk out of here either being reminded of or knowing again this weekend. There is something so powerful in your darkest hour praising God and being thankful and giving names to the blessings that you walk in. I know there's a bunch of bad stuff going on in your life. I know a bunch of you walked into all of our campuses and, and, and all hell seems to be breaking out in your life. I, don't, I would never be as insensitive to just ask you to do something that on the surface sounds like martyristic and masochistic as to just praise God even when life's horrible unless I knew that I knew that I knew that praise is where victory starts. And I'm not even promising praise is going to change your circumstance, but it is going to change the posture of your heart every time. In thy presence, there is fullness of joy, and we enter his presence with praise and thanksgiving and gratitude. It's a powerful decision. The spoils of the kingdom of God go to people that learn this lesson early and use it often. We praise God when it's going great, and we praise God when everything's on the line and we don't know what's going to happen in the next hour. Something in us says, no, enemy, my circumstances don't get to dictate my posture. God's goodness does. And so when I can't sing about the goodness of life, I can always sing about the goodness of God. That's why we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We don't fix our eyes on our circumstances. They're too inconsistent. They're too unstable. We as kingdom people fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. He scorned at shame, shame and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And it says, consider him who did that so you don't grow weary and lose heart. 
If you're growing weary and losing heart, can I tell you what your soul needs most right now? It doesn't need a change of circumstance. It needs something in you to rise up and go, I'm getting my eyes off of what I keep looking at and thinking about, and I'm going to fix it on Jesus. I'm just going to start praising Jesus. I'm just going to start worshiping Jesus. Not because this is good, because he is good. And in that, hearts start to change. And over time, even the trajectory often of circumstances start to change. But even if they don't, praise is still the best thing for the human soul. So if Job can say, even if God slays me, so I'll praise him. Can you say, so will I? That's what I'm asking. That's what I'm asking this weekend is, is if Paul can praise God and, and Silas when they unjustly get thrown in prison, the guy who wrote, give thanks in all circumstances for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. He didn't just write that in theory as a theologian. He lived that verse out. Before he wrote that verse, he got thrown in prison for delivering a a, a little girl from demon possession because she could fortune tell. And as soon as he delivered her from her demon, she couldn't do that anymore and it killed the family business. They got so mad that they went to the Roman officials and had Paul and Silas flogged for doing an incredibly beautiful thing to a little girl. And they got stripped naked and they got beaten and they got thrown in prison. You know what the story goes on to say? It says, at midnight, at about midnight, Paul and Silas started to praise God on the back end of the worst day they probably ever had up to that point. The worst day, circumstantially, in prison for doing something noble, beaten, and then humilified. I almost said a word. Humilified? (laughs) Humiliated. (laughs) So great. I'm a treat. Sorry. Humiliated to the point of being stripped naked publicly and then thrown in prison. And you know what the response is? And it's not a, it's not a response because he's better than us. It's a response because he was so in tune with how good God is. He knew that God was going to work something good out of this. So they begin to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs in prison. And the guards start to hear it. And other prisoners start to hear it. And you got to know that they're thinking, how could they possibly do this? Under these type of circumstances, we just beat the snot out of them, stripped them naked, embarrassed them publicly, and unjustly put them in prison, and they're starting to sing about the goodness of their God? Who is this God? The the prison guard had to start thinking. The other prisoners had to start. Who is this God, right? And the Bible goes on to say that all of a sudden, and this is a beautiful picture uh, uh, physically of what praise does in our hearts spiritually, all of a sudden the earthquake happened and the walls literally fell and the bars were no more. And they should have got up and ran away, but they stayed because they knew according to Roman law that official would be put to death if he lost them on his watch. So they stay and instead of running, not caring about him, They teach him about Jesus and he gets saved and he goes home and his family gets saved and they end up getting baptized. That's the power of praise right there. That's the outcome of praise. It doesn't always play out literally like that. But man, people who are people of thanksgiving and praise and audacious gratitude like Paul and Silas have God stories everywhere they go. I want to be one of those people. I want to have God stories everywhere I go. It will not happen if we are not people who practice praise and thanksgiving and gratitude. So if Job can say, even if God slays me, I will still pray him. And if Paul and Silas on the back end of their worst moment can say, we're gonna praise God, can you say, so will I? Any of you guys at all campus, are you with me in that? So here's what we're gonna do before we walk out of these doors this weekend. We're gonna take communion together and we're gonna get our eyes off Jesus. (laughs) No, we're gonna get our eyes on Jesus. This is God going, they get the point. Get off stage. That's literally how he speaks to me. He's like, I'm going to stifle your words because we're done. We get it. You've done, you've done all right, Chad. Walk off stage, right? This is what we're going to do, though. We're going to take communion together. And so here's what's going to happen. Paul, Paul tells us very clearly in 1 Corinthians, we don't take communion flippantly. It's a very serious, it's a very beautiful thing. We're remembering the, the, the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior, Jesus doesn't get more significant than that, right? So he says, a man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread or drinks of the cup because anyone who eats of the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he says. He's saying, hey, before you just do this thing and, and risk it becoming religious or just something we do at church, 
No, no, no. This is where our hearts literally realign back to the joy of the Lord and the peace that passes understanding. When you get your eyes off your circumstances and you get your eyes on how awesome Jesus is and what he speaks over you. And that's what communion is. And so the ushers are going to come down at all of our campuses right now, ninja style, because we don't want to ruin this moment. And we're very quietly and respectfully going to pass those buckets. And you guys are going to get communion. And for about five or six minutes, I just want you to stay seated. I don't need you singing along. This isn't participatory. I just want you to listen to the words of this song and watch the images on the screen. This is a song called So Will I.
We're going to take communion together, church-wide. It's a really beautiful moment because it's an opportunity to, like I said earlier, just fix our eyes on Jesus, not ourselves, not our circumstances, not what's going on, but to just literally fix your eyes on Jesus. And that's why we wanted to put some powerful images up on the screen to remind you of what he did. And the whole purpose he did it is onefold. He loves you. And life sometimes on this side of heaven will not love you. And some of you, you're feeling that right now. He loves you. He calls you holy. That's what we're about to eat to. He calls you blameless. He calls you saint, not when you earn it. He calls you saint when you believe it. When you cry out to him for salvation, Ephesians 1 makes it very clear. You're called saint. You're called holy. You're called blameless. You're called son. You're called daughter. He adopted every one of us into his kingdom and gave us the full-fledged rights of sons and daughters. That's who we are in Jesus Christ, and we cannot go back to that enough. It is the gospel. It's the foundation. It's the reason we meet is to come back and re-up with gratitude and thanksgiving and praise to the one that calls us all of those things. And when you truly know who you are in Jesus because of what Jesus has done for you as a total gift, man, there is power that comes with that. You show me a soul who knows and believes what Jesus speaks over them, and I will show you a soul that despite any difficulty they walk in in this lifetime will have trails of grace and God stories everywhere they go. So Jesus, uh, the night before he was betrayed, he was sitting with his closest friends and, and he said this, he says, every time you break bread, if you choose to, I want you to remember my body, which was broken for you. And they didn't fully understand yet, obviously, what he was talking about. They were 24 hours away from that, but we have 2,000 years of remembrance and understanding of that. The punishment that brought you and I peace was what? On him. We deserved it. He took it. And there's only one motivating factor. He loves you. You are so loved right now by the creator of the universe. Those of you who walk through our doors and you don't feel very loved, you don't feel very cared for by other human beings or even by yourself, can I just tell you, the only one whose opinion ultimately really matters dotes over you right now, speaks life over you right now, had his body utterly destroyed with you in mind. That's how loved you are. And that's what we come here to celebrate and honor and to put our minds and our focus on. Let's eat. In the same way after supper, it said he took the cup. 
And he looked at them and said, he looked at them and said, gentlemen, this cup of wine represents, it's a picture of the new covenant that's gonna be in my blood. That you are a product of perfection on the other side of salvation. God calls you perfect before he makes you holy. And some of you need to rest in that today. At all of our campuses, some of you need to rest in that. Men and women at God Behind Bars, you can't hear that enough. God calls you perfect when you believe in him, not when you behave in him. Behavior follows belief. So rest in and just receive by faith through grace the fact that you sit even in that prison sentence right now. You sit there perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. Man at God behind bars, you are a son of the king. You hold your head up high. Ladies at our Denver Women's Correctional Facility, you are blood-bought daughters of the king. You hold your heads up high. Everyone else at all of our campuses, the same goes for you guys. We don't walk out of here with our heads down and our shoulders slumped. No, 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 because we serve a God that has paid the price for everything you and I will ever walk through in this lifetime. Can we drink to that? Jesus, thank you. Holy Spirit, thank you. Father God, thank you for your love, your grace, and your friendship. And I pray, Holy Spirit, in these last few minutes we have, as we begin to sing by faith our praises to you, that it would be a sweet-smelling aroma. The new covenant form of sacrifice, the only sacrifice you said that is left in the new covenant is a sacrifice of praise. And I pray that right now as we're about to sacrifice and give you our praise, no matter what we've walked in here with, that you would receive it as sweet incense to your nostrils, Father God, that it would be such a beautiful moment that you get glorified and we get full of joy and everybody wins as we walk out, God. I pray this in the name of Jesus at every campus for just a few more minutes. Let's worship.